Welcome to the JNMP podcast. I'm here with Dr. Benatar. Dr. Benatar, it's really nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So from what I understand, you have an MD and PhD. You're a specialist in neuromuscular medicine, that's right? That's correct. And I understand that you're a professor of neurology. You're the chief of the neuromuscular division. You're the director of the ALS Center, the vice chair of the Clinical and Translational Research Center too at the Department of Neurology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine out in Florida. That's correct. Yeah, how long have you been out there for? Oh gosh, 12, 13 years. Yeah, what brought you out to Florida? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, which is where I trained originally. Um, I then did a PhD in Oxford, did some clinical training in the US in Boston. And I think I've been moving south ever since, um, down to Atlanta and then down to Miami. So I'm about as far south as I can go. It's either the Keys um, or Cuba next, but no, I'm, I'm here for, for a while, I think. So basically you're traveling towards better and better weather is what I'm hearing here. That's exactly right. Well, after leaving Cape Town, I went to bad weather and I'm slowly getting better. Yeah, so I'm Saima Chaudhry. I'm an autoimmune and general neurologist. I practice over at Brown, which is in Rhode Island. Um, and our mm. weather is not as good as in Florida. So I, I understand you're, you're traveling further south there. Yeah, no, we're very lucky. But, you know, we're here today to discuss your article, which I thought was fascinating. Um, So I was reading through it, and your article is entitled, A Roadmap to ALS Prevention, Strategies and Priorities. And so I practice in general neurology, and the concept of ALS prevention is not something I had ever really thought about before. And as you know, because you practice in neuromuscular neurology, ALS is just a horrible disease, right? It's horrible for us as practitioners to diagnose. It's horrible for patients to undergo. So this really struck me, your concept of ALS prevention and strategies to go about that. So why did you decide to publish this in the JNNP and and why is this important? Yeah, so it's a great question. I've been sort of thinking about this idea for, I don't know, the better part of 20 years. And when we first sort of raised this idea, I think we were mocked a little bit. You know, this was sort of craziness. Um, We don't know how to treat the disease. How on earth are you going to prevent it? And at some level, I, I, I sort of get that. On the other hand, I also think as a general principle in medicine, we're most likely to be um, effective in treating something if we treat early. And the idea of prevention just sort of takes that to its next logical conclusion, which is let's get in super early and try to prevent. You know, one of the enduring concerns we have in ALS is that by the time the disease has come over the clinical horizon, by the time people have been to multiple doctors and then general neurologists and gotten a referral and a diagnosis, the disease is very advanced and late stage. Um, And maybe that's one of the key reasons why we've really struggled to find effective therapies. Maybe we're just treating too late. Maybe that's like trying to treat metastatic melanoma as opposed to excising a melanoma when it's still localized to the skin. So this has really been the impetus behind a lot of the work that went into this. And whilst we've been working mostly with a genetic model, we think there are many things we've learned, I'm hoping we'll talk about those, that begin to enable us to think about this in the the context of all forms of ALS. So yes, you mentioned ALS, and and in your article you talk about different strategies potentially we can use to go ahead and a roadmap to prevention. Can you start off by just telling us basics about ALS? Um, What is this condition? What are the signs and symptoms of it? 
Sure. So for the non-neuromuscular audience, ALS is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. In the U.S., sometimes referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. This is a degenerative disorder characterized primarily by progressive weakness with evidence of both upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron dysfunction. But increasingly, we also recognize that ALS exists along a spectrum with frontotemporal dementia, or FTD, um, and a significant proportion of patients have cognitive and or behavioral impairment along the spectrum of frontotemporal uh, pathology. And this is an invariably fatal disease. We have some pharmacologically approved therapies. None are rarely um, panaceas or meaningfully impact the disease. And so there really is an urgent need to um, advance therapy development for this otherwise awful disorder. And then what is the lifetime risk of developing ALS? I don't know if you know that offhand. And is there a difference in this risk between biologically males and females? There, there is. And um, we think that the lifetime risk is about one in 260 for men um, and about one in 400 for women. So whilst this is thought about as a rare disease, this is actually from a lifetime risk perspective, not uncommon. And part of the reason it's rare is because it's fatal. So people don't live long. So at any point in time, there are not that many people living with it. Um, so the prevalence is low, but the incidence maybe is um, perhaps not as low as one might think. Yeah, I thought that was striking when you listed it in your article. That's It's a little bit higher than I would have expected. Yeah, I mean, you know, another way of thinking about that is to say, you know, the incidence of ALS and multiple sclerosis, you're an autoimmune neurologist, are actually comparable. But the prevalence of multiple sclerosis is much, much, much higher. And that's because patients live with disease and we have meaningfully effective therapies to manage disability. Yeah, that's why I chose to go into autoimmune neurology. I think working with ALS patients is devastating. It really is. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's why I do autoimmune neurology because we have some treatments there. My hope is that from what you're doing with this, we'll have better treatments or prevention, as you're saying, for ALS. We hope so indeed. In your opinion, um, what contributes to the development of ALS? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think as with probably many disorders, it's a combination of genetics, um, the environment, and age. And so, you know, by and large, children don't get ALS, and the risk increases as you get older. Um, it may begin to drop as you sort of pass a certain age. Um, and we do have many monogenetic causes of disease that have been identified. Um, many of these genetic mutations are sufficient to cause disease, but some are not. Some have incomplete penetrance, and why some people develop the disease and some don't is not clear. Is that an interaction of age or an environmental risk? Um, that's not entirely clear. Or is there a second genetic um, event? And then we think there's an important role for the environment, but it's an aspect of um, the biology or the etiology of the disease that we currently don't understand well. There's so much to ALS that we just don't understand. And as you mentioned in your article, trying to prevent ALS is no little feat. So can you briefly outline what knowledge is needed to achieve this very ambitious goal? Yeah, so I think the first thing is we need to know something about who's at risk, right? If we want to prevent a disease that only arises in two per 100,000 people of the general population, it would be hard to sort of intervene in the entire population. Um, those strategies might not make sense. So we need to know who's at risk. We need to be able to identify that population. And then we need a window of opportunity to intervene before disease develops. And we need to know what we're going to intervene with. And another important part of that is we might need to know 
when to intervene. So even when we know what the risk factors are, and somebody, for example, based on a genetic mutation may be, may be at very high lifetime risk of disease, they could develop disease when they're 20, when they're 50, or when they're 70. And so if you're thinking about a preventative treatment, depending on how noxious that is, it may not make sense to give it to somebody for 50 years before they develop disease. You'd like to come in just at the right time to prevent it so just before it comes over the horizon or before it begins to become apparent biologically. So we need knowledge in all of those areas if we're going to um, advance this idea. I love how you guys realized that we needed knowledge in all those areas and how you outlined that. That clearly shows that you're, you know, you've been in the field for a long time. So you, you kind of know what we need to learn more about and, and how to go about it. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we started thinking about this in the context of genetic risk, because when we started, that was really the only real risk factor that we knew. And so we knew that if you carry this a mutation, this particular gene, there's a high lifetime risk of developing disease. But what we also knew is that if we're ever going to translate that information into doing, for example, a preventative trial to ask whether a therapeutic um, can prevent disease, we would need mechanisms or tools to predict when disease were going to develop. And so that led us to think about how we might develop biological markers or biomarkers that might tell us when disease is coming. And we knew that as we've discussed, we would need an effective or a therapeutic that had a reasonable chance of being effective. And we didn't want to wait till that therapeutic came over the horizon because there was so much preparatory work to do. And so we spent the better part of the last 15 years sort of doing that work. And that's what's got us to the point now of being able to really think concretely about this and to think about how what we've learned can translate into thinking about prevention for other forms of disease. You actually mentioned the first ALS prevention trial in your article, and you kind of just alluded to it now, and it's using a particular genetic therapy. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, this is a study in a population of patients who carry a mutation in the SOD1 or the superoxide dismutase 1 gene. And mutations in that gene probably account for about 2% of all ALS, maybe about 20% of ALS where there's a family history of disease. Um, and we're looking here at a subset of SOD1 mutation carriers. And the therapeutic or the potential therapeutic is an antisense oligonucleotide, um, which is in a broadly speaking, a form of a gene therapy that will knock down um, the level of the SOD1 protein, which we think is toxic and responsible for causing the disease. And so the idea here is to give people that SOD1 antisense um, oligonucleotide before they have clinical evidence of disease. And we can do this because in this population, we now have tools to predict when disease is coming or um, tools that we think are reasonably likely to predict that. So we know who to treat and we know when to treat them. And what's the, the name of this genetic therapy that you're talking about? Yeah, so the name of it is Tofersen. It's a product that's currently under review by the FDA um, for the treatment of people with SOD1 ALS. So people who are already affected by ALS and have an SOD1 mutation. So um, we'll know very soon whether or not this is FDA approved. Are people going to use this? Do you think that your colleagues are, are, are they excited about it? Do people know about this? 
I think people do. I mean, I think it's gotten a lot of interest in the ALS community. You know, just maybe to step aside because it, it's relevant here. So the phase three clinical trial of this drug, tofersin, the affected SOD1 population, actually missed its clinical endpoint. It did not clearly show um, a clinical benefit, but it showed a very marked biological effect. Um, it showed an effect on lowering SOD1 in the CSF, so knowing that we hit the target. Um, and it also showed a fairly dramatic reduction in a biomarker, something called neurofilament light chain or NFL, which is a marker of axonal degeneration. Um, and we've not seen that before with an ALS therapeutic. And then in an analysis that looked at both the double-blind phase of the study and the open-label extension, and this is post hoc to some extent, it looks like the clinical benefits come later. But what's interesting is people in the study were treated a median of eight or nine months after symptom onset. And coming back to where we started, if we think early treatment matters, that's the motivation for saying, let's take this promising therapeutic and look at it pre-symptomatically to see if we bring it to bear earlier, will the clinical effect or the clinical benefit become that much more um, apparent? That's so interesting. And so in your clinical practice are, or in other neuromuscular neurologists that you know, are you guys routinely checking people for genetic markers of ALS, like the SOD1 mutation? That's a fantastic question. I think practice varies enormously. Um, I'm a firm believer that we should routinely be doing genetic testing, or let me rephrase, we should routinely be offering genetic testing in the context of genetic counseling. And we should be doing that whether or not there's a family history of ALS. And I should say a word about that. People have often conflated familial ALS with genetic ALS, and that's a mistake. Familial just means there's a family history. Genetic means there's an identifiable genetic cause. And we can identify genetic causes whether there's a family history or not. And although the likelihood of finding a genetic cause is more common, you will find a genetic cause more often when there's a family history. If you look across the entire spectrum of patients with ALS, just the numbers wise, you'll probably find more genetic mutations in people without a family history than you will in people with a family history, because the people without are so much larger proportion of the overall population. So I think we should be routinely offering people testing um, and doing it. One, because there may be some gene therapies coming over the horizon. And two, because there's an increasing array of um, clinical trials available that are specifically targeting the underlying genetic cause of disease. But we haven't yet really scaled up the infrastructure to do this. Um, and so we need genetic counselors and we need mechanisms to do this. And so I think this will take time to change practice. Maybe having a therapeutic will really light a fire um, and push people to do it. Yeah. And, and where are you sending your genetic tests to? Is there a particular place that, that this is done in the States? Um, there are multiple laboratories that do this, and so you know any of them could do it. There's some sponsored programs, if insurance won't cover it, where we can send a blood sample for genetic testing. I think the key is to know what you're testing for and that you're including um, the most common genes and that you're not including genes that are irrelevant. And I will just say that as an aside about genetic panels. Often you get a whole bunch of stuff you didn't want, and you might not be getting everything you do want. So know what you're ordering and make sure you get what you need. Oh, I find the same is true in autoimmune neurology. You can get all these random all testing those antibodies. Is it, yeah. <laughs> is it is it clinically significant, right? Yeah. So I'm with you there. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And then, I mean, the main crux of your article, you really talk about these high risk groups um, and that, you know, you can focus on in terms of targeting, preventing ALS. And the high risk groups that you mentioned are genetic risk factors, those that have frontotemporal dementia, individuals with mild motor impairment, veterans, and then individuals with certain environmental risk factors. So we already kind of talked a little bit about the genetic risk factors, but um, can we talk about this a little bit more? And you mentioned the SOD1 mutation, but what about the other the other genetics, um, you know, alleles, um, genes with this, are, are certain genetic mutations or genes uh, more likely to lead to ALS um, versus others? Um, so if you can just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so there are many genes that have now been implicated in ALS. You know, the most common worldwide would be the uh, repeat expansion in the C9-NORF72 gene. And that puts people at risk not just for ALS, but also for FTD. And we can come back and talk about that if we want to. The challenge with C9-NORF72 is that there's um, a greater relevance of age here. The risk of developing disease increases more with age as opposed to SOD1. But it's also the case that C9-NORF72 is incompletely penetrant. So that adds a complexity. Not everybody with the mutation will develop disease. And we don't know amongst those with the mutation who will develop ALS, who will develop FTD, which will come first, who will develop both. And so it's... uh, a slightly more difficult um, challenge um, for those reasons, but maybe easier because it's more common in a much larger population um, that can be studied. We're also less further along in developing therapeutics for the C9 affected population, but I think these efforts have to go in parallel as that work is being done to identify those promising therapeutics. We want to figure out what are the markers that might predict when disease is coming in the C9 population so that we know in whom to intervene um, and when. That's the genetic piece. And at some level, that's still the easiest piece because we understand it the best. You know, the other populations you reference, um, the environmental risks, the veterans, people with other neurodegenerative diseases, family members of people with um, even non-genetic ALS, they're all at an elevated risk compared to the general population, um, but still the risk is relatively low, which makes this um, a challenge. Maybe we should talk about the prodromal states of mild motor impairment, but um, we may come to that. No, let's talk about it. I was going to ask about that. You yeah. know, what about mild motor impairment in ALS? Because this is the first time I'm hearing about it. So this is a new idea. So I should sort of step back and sort of say a little bit about what it is and how we sort of came across this and why we think it's relevant. So, you know, the presumption as a neurologist, when we see somebody with ALS, typically they've had symptoms for about a year, right? And I say that because there's a latency of about a year from symptom onset to diagnosis. And so we ask people about symptoms. They say, oh, yes, a year ago I started tripping and my foot was weak. And we assume that what came before those symptoms was clinically silent because that's the first thing that the patient notices and reports. Turns out, though, when we're following people prospectively, so we're taking you at genetic risk, you don't have disease, and we're following you systematically in a study before you do ever develop symptoms, what we've uncovered is that people have motor manifestations of disease, signs of lower motor neuron dysfunction, signs of upper motor neuron dysfunction, maybe EMG abnormalities, maybe subtle cognitive or behavioral changes that an observer notes or a family member notes or that we can pick up on testing that are not necessarily producing symptoms. And so as we follow people with that, they then go on to develop the full-blown clinical syndrome of ALS or FTD. And so that's led us to the recognition that there is this prodromal state where there is a 
an outward clinical manifestation, but it's only observable, not necessarily subjectively perceptible. And so we've used the term mild motor impairment or MMI to capture this idea to really build off of what's already in the public neurologist and public knowledge of mild cognitive impairment in the Alzheimer's world. And I think that's the right analogy. We recognize MCI or mild cognitive impairment as a prodromal state before you develop full-blown Alzheimer's. And parenthetically, the whole Alzheimer's world has moved into doing clinical trials in that prodromal state, right? They too know that we have to get in early. And so we think MMI exists in ALS. We see this across a range of genotypes. And if I were a betting man, I would say this almost certainly exists in sporadic disease as well, probably in everybody. It's intuitive at many levels. And in some people, especially those with a C9 mutation, but others as well, it may not just be MMI, but MCI or MBI, mild behavioral impairment. And so I see this as the first prodromal set of clinical syndromes that we recognize in ALS that maybe is a foot in the door or the thin edge of the wedge that's going to give us an opportunity to maybe identify people without a genetic risk who are at high risk of going on to develop ALS. And maybe the analogy here would be something like REM sleep behavior disorder that we know you have a high risk of going on to develop Parkinson's disease or olfactory loss that we might say you're at risk of going on to develop Parkinson's. And we recognize those as prodromal non-motor clinical manifestations of disease. And that's really propelling forward early intervention ideas and thinking in Parkinson's. And I think recognizing MMI, MCI, MBI gives us an opportunity to do that in the non-genetic um, ALS population. So for me, that's an enormously exciting opportunity, but something where we need a lot of work um, to really understand what does that mean and what is that risk of developing ALS if you have that sort of clinical syndrome. This is a really interesting concept, so I'm glad that you were able to um, kind of describe it a bit further. As you were talking, I'm trying to think, you know, as a general neurologist, what can I do to kind of pre-screen people that I notice are coming in with mild motor impairment, REM sleep behavior disorders? But then I'm thinking, a lot of times, I don't see these people early on, right? Like, when you see ALS patients, you kind of see them when things have already been per progressing. We don't really catch them in these prevention phases, I find, as neurologists, right? So I wonder if there's something that we should be doing in terms of educating our, our colleagues in primary care or internal medicine to kind of look out for in particular patients. Like if they're noticing sleep behavioral issues, which is a lot of the population, or this um, mild motor impairment, um, if there's certain tools that we could maybe give them um, so that we could see these patients in our office sooner or, or do what like you're suggesting, preventative techniques for ALS. Yeah. I mean, I can offer some thoughts. I think we don't know yet because we don't have enough sort of hard data. But I think the idea is, is that I think, you know, as a general neurologist, I'm guessing you see people who may have some vague complaints. You're not quite sure what to make of it. You do an examination, you might notice, you know, there's a diminished ankle reflex on one side. That might lead you to look for, you know, a, a problem in the back. Uh, maybe you don't find an L5S1 root. Um, maybe if you did an EMG and you saw some denervation in, you know, gastroc and turbant, and maybe there were some fasciculations in another limb muscle outside of an L5S1 root, you might say, hmm, not sure what to make of that. Come back in three months, I'll take another look at you. 
I think we recognize that, right? And we say, tincture of time, let's see you. But maybe what we need is to formally study those people, not to say, let's just give it time, to say, let's kind of put you under the microscope more. Maybe let's have you see an ALS specialist. And of course, that's going to come with its own set of challenges, bandwidth and capacity, but also raising anxiety and concerns. And so we need to think about those issues. But I do wonder whether... And maybe this is harder at the general neurologist level, but maybe we need to pay more attention to those people who have vague nonspecific symptoms, but clear abnormalities on exam that we can't otherwise explain that we might say, let's just give it time. And maybe that warrants further investigation and closer observation than we currently give it. Yeah, no, I think you're... you're on par here because that's what I've done in the past. You know, you say, well, see me in a couple months. And at that point, you're already getting a phone call from the patient saying, well, now I can't move. I can't move on to my back. And in this condition is already progressed and you're starting to realize, okay, this is ALS. Um, So that's some interesting thoughts. And then going back to frontotemporal dementia and ALS, what's the relationship there? Yeah. So it's interesting. I think there are several sort of points of sort of overlap here. So the one is we know that there's sort of a clinical overlap. People who have ALS have often, not always, have some cognitive dysfunction or behavioral dysfunction of the frontotemporal variety. Um, A proportion of ALS patients, a relatively small proportion, but not an insignificant number, maybe 5, 10, 15%, may develop full-blown FTD. That's often BVFTD, the behavioral variant FTD. Likewise, if we look from the FTD end, some of those patients have motor abnormalities, fasciculations, abnormalities on EMG, and a subset of them will go on to develop ALS as well. So there's some sort of phenotypic overlap. What we also know is that there's um, genetic overlap. So if we look at something, a, mut- a gene like the C9-ORF72 repeat expansion, we know that the same genetic abnormality can produce ALS, FTD, or both. So now there's clinical overlap and there's genetic overlap. But there's also biological and pathological overlap in the form of TDP43 pathology that is the primary pathology that underpins most ALS, Parenthetically, not SOD1 ALS or ALS due to a mutation in the FAS gene, but probably most of the rest of ALS, and a significant chunk of FTD when not due to, um, for example, um, tau pathology, it's due to TDP43 pathology. And so now we know there's a clinical, a genetic, and a pathological link between these. Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. I I remember learning this for boards, but I like your take on it. (laughs) And then um, what is the link between, you know, being a veteran and ALS? Can you tell us a little bit more? Is, you know, are we seeing um, more veterans having this condition? Yeah. So I think this is primarily sort of an empiric observation that um, veterans are at twice the general population risk of developing ALS. And that's been sort of consistently observed. It may be that people who are um, deployed to an active combat zone, that that risk is mediated by that group. But what mediates that risk, I think we don't know. Is it the way you're built? Is it a shared risk? That if you're sort of physically capable, um, that you have a certain ability, your motor system's built in a certain way, that that's also a selective vulnerability? Or is it that people in the military are exposed to something? Is that pesticides? Is it toxicants in the environment? Is it the physical sort of exertion that might accompany um, what people in the military go through? So I think we don't know what mediates that, but it is an opportunity to say here's a population at elevated risk and understanding what mediates that 
might be a clue to what mediates disease in, in the non-veteran population as well. And I think that was part of the idea we were trying to convey is that not to minimize the challenges, but if we study populations at elevated risk and we can understand why they're at elevated risk, maybe that tells us something about the general population. But we sort of get our foot in the door again by sort of studying people who seem to have a selective or an increased vulnerability. And you mentioned that potentially they had some environmental exposures. Can you speak more about that? What are particular exposures that could be linked to developing ALS? Yeah, so I mean, the sorts of things that the literature has pointed to are things like pesticides, things like lead exposure, things like physical activity. Um, and one of the challenges we have just incidentally, we talk a little bit about this, is even when we identify potential environmental risks, how do we translate that into evidence or recommendations in terms of what people should do to mitigate that risk? So what do you say? Nobody should engage in an activity that puts them at exposure to lead. It's kind of hard to do. and People don't always know what those exposures are. And so I think that's sort of a, you know, a, a more challenging proposition, but that's one of the sort of evidence bases that I think we need to generate is how do we translate evidence of a little bit of increased risk into sort of a behavioral modification or a pharmacological modification that can mitigate what results from that behavioral um, or that environmental risk, if that makes sense. Yeah, this could be um, something that's implicated in terms of public health risk, right? So we're finding that certain environmental exposures are leading to increased risks of ALS. We may have to reach out to the countries that we live in and say, hey, we need to do something from an environmental standpoint to reduce this so that our population um, doesn't get this severe um, neurodegenerative disease that is um, lethal. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think for some things, and for example, the, the relationship between smoking and ALS is controversial, but I'd use it as just as an example. You know, so imagine smoking increases your risk of ALS. That would be an easy behavioral intervention because there are many other health benefits to not smoking, right? So maybe there are opportunities if we find exposures that are also otherwise harmful that we can piggyback onto other efforts and partner with other disease communities to try to sort of engage in those um, uh, protective or preventive um, solutions. And then in addition to studying groups at high risk for ALS, which you've I think done a pretty good job of outlining, you mentioned identifying and studying people at reduced risk. So what factors or groups um, may be protective against ALS? Yeah, so it's a great question. We don't have a lot of information here. There's some literature, and it's um, a little bit controversial whether you know some use of some medications might reduce your risk. And I think we shouldn't get too far into that because the evidence there is conflicting, and I don't want to sort of highlight one medication or another. But there's this really interesting population that a colleague here, Duke um, Rick Badlack, has been studying of what are called ALS reversals. These are people who've been documented to have ALS by you know card carrying. ALS neurologists, so the diagnosis is not in question, who've then gotten better. And I think, and I think Dr. Bedlack is right, there's an enormous opportunity to learn something from this population. Do they have some protective genetic factor? Are they have they been exposed to something environmentally? Are they taking a medication or a supplement? What is it about these people that has enabled them to sort of beat back um, this otherwise inexorably progressive and fatal disease? And so I think studying that population who seems to be not protected from getting it 
bit protected in the sense of recovering from it that might lead to um, um, some clues. So I think it's a smaller segment, but I think very valuable for us to think about because there are important lessons there. Another example of that, which I don't think we mentioned in the paper, would be gene mutation carriers who get to a ripe old age and don't develop disease. Do they have some protective factor that's enabled them to live with this genetic mutation and not develop disease? Maybe they hold some clue as well that we could learn from um, that might be important. Yeah, that's interesting. So what are the main take-home points for, you know, those that are listening? If, you know, um, if people are busy and they don't have enough time to read your article, which I hope they do, but, um, you know, for people listening, what are the main take-home points that um, you would like them to pick up on? I think a few things. I think firstly, I would say one of, I think, the enduring challenges in ALS is that we need to intervene as early as we can. And whether that's in the affected population or people at risk, early treatment is likely to be the best treatment. The other is that if we're really going to be successful here, we need to understand the biology of the disease and develop therapies that are predicated upon that biology um, and targeting as early as possible. And so I think at least beginning to have the conversation around the possibility of preventing ALS maybe will help people to sort of think about um, the complexity and the challenges of some of these issues. But I think at least starting to have the conversation and getting this idea into our general sort of social conscience is maybe a good first step. Yeah, and I, I love that you talk about groups that could be at, at higher risk or those that are potentially lower risk and really focusing on this to um, better prevent ALS kind of moving forward. And, and this is kind of where the research lies. No, I agree 100%. And then your conclusion to me was the most striking. So, and I quote, you guys say, um, because of the limited capacity of the central nervous system for repair, early treatment of ALS is preferred before there's there has been significant neuronal loss. So this to me really struck because you're basically saying it makes sense, stop the neuronal loss before it manifests. That's really the goal here. And I hope that we're able to achieve that as a medical community. Seems like we have a long way to go. I agree. And maybe I can just add something here. We know that the capacity has some... Um has some capacity for regeneration. We see this in the peripheral nervous system. When there's denervation, there's renovation. And the problem in ALS is that the denervation, the degeneration, outpaces the renovation. So if we could come, if we could bring an effective therapeutic to bear early, there are some natural or innate reparative mechanisms that might enable somebody to recover lost function. But if we're going to be successful with that, we have to get in early. Think about the patient with polio. Um, and the ability to recover from that acute paralytic illness. Um, and so the body does have some innate ability to um, engage in functional recovery. So we have to get in early. And this is a broader lesson for, I think, every neurodegenerative disease and probably every disease that we, um, that we deal with. Yes, yeah, certainly it's something of interest in the autoimmune community too. Agree. And then, you know, before we end, can you just tell me in your own practice, how do you treat patients that have ALS? Yeah, so it's a great question. I mean, I think the gold standard is multidisciplinary care. So we know that this disease impacts people and their families in a myriad of ways. And so the best way we know to look after people 
um, is to engage in a multidisciplinary team. So the way that works typically is a patient will come to clinic and they'll see eight or nine providers. In addition to the neurologist, they'll see a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. They'll see a speech pathologist and a nutritionist. They'll see the respiratory therapist. They'll see a psychologist. Um, and increasingly, one of the things that we embed in our multidisciplinary team as well um, is a member of the research team. We feel that in a disease where we don't currently have effective therapies, offering people the opportunity to participate in research, to contribute to research, to be in a clinical trial if one is available, is an integral part um, of what we should be doing and offering all of our patients. And I will add that for many, if not most of our patients, the hope for this disease lies through research. So I would love to see us integrating more research into clinical care in a way that I think the oncologists have done a much better job of than um, we have perhaps as a neurological community. So those would be my thoughts. You know, I love that it's a multidisciplinary approach. Um, and, you know, I thank you so much for talking with us today. I think that this is such an important topic and I really commend the work that you do. I don't know how you do it. I, I think if I had to work with ALS patients every day, it'd be really challenging. Um, and it really takes a special person to do that. Well, it's enormously rewarding. And I think we're inspired by our patients who are somehow remarkably able to adapt and live and face this disease. And I think it's their courage in dealing with it that really motivates us not just to provide care, but to try to get out of the business of care by not just treating, but preventing. And we all hope to put ourselves out of business. Yeah, and I think you mentioned the key word here is hope. And that's what your article does when you talk about a roadmap to ALS, uh, prevention and strategies. You're really giving the medical community, and I think patients, hope that maybe we can get to this condition before the severity to which we normally see that. I agree 100%. And I appreciate um, your highlighting this and helping to spread the word about um, what we think are very important ideas. Yeah, they are. I think this was um, one of the best articles I've seen written in a while. Um, and it was really great to read. It was an easy read, too. So um, you really put it in very um, easy to you know, acquire language, um, which makes it just better for me since I don't specialize in the field. Well, with that said, we'll wrap up for today. So thank you again, Dr. Banditar, for joining us. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on the JNNP podcast page. You can find a link to this in the description of this podcast. This is actually a new series, which we started a couple weeks ago. If you missed it, check out our first episode where we interviewed Dr. Matteo Gastaldi from Italy on his article talking about MOGAD, myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein associated disease. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. With that said, that's all we have for today. See you next time.